It used to be that we wondered whether media companies would move to the cloud. We wondered if the cloud was secure enough. We wondered if it was reliable enough. We wondered if it would be cost effective. But those days have gone. Almost every media company in the world has significant portions of its operations in the cloud. Some are based entirely there. Yet still, we know that different parts of the industry are at different levels of cloud maturity. For some workflows, it's a no-brainer to be in the cloud. For others, even today, there are still some limitations. So I've spent my summer working with over 60 DPP member companies to understand the rate of cloud adoption across four different parts of the media value chain. Post-production, supply chain automation, playout, and streaming. You can read about all of the findings in four new Cloud for Media reports we've just published. But in today's DPP podcast, we're exploring some of the surprising findings from the work including the fact that the cloud for media is creating some pretty seismic changes in some of the established relationships between major players in our industry. Thank you for joining us for the latest DPP podcast. I'm Rowan de Pomeray, CTO of the DPP. And as always, I'm joined by this other guy. Yeah, it's another guy who's called Mark Harrison, and I'm the CEO of the DPP. And I have to say, Rowan, um, you know that thing when you're on a holiday and the, like the perfect experience on holidays, you should be sitting on a veranda holding a beer whilst watching other people work, like, you know, local farmers toiling in the fields or some workmen building a house or something. Um, <laughs> it sort of adds to your pleasure. So I, I've, I've really enjoyed being able to sit back and watch you absolutely sweat your way through four of these incredibly in-depth reports and and just, you know, drink my beer and, in, and enjoy the end product. So thanks for that. Well, it's so kind of you to uh, revel in my pain, Mark, but uh, <laughs> I think we all know you've not exactly been sat with your feet up. Well, I haven't really, no, no. But um, yeah, it, it really has been a pleasure to to read these four outputs. And although I have gained and learned a huge amount from each of them in turn so yeah big thanks to you and all the contributors for that must admit it was only on the fourth and final one about streaming at scale that the point you just made there in the introduction really landed for me i thought wow you know so much of what has been talked about in these reports that's really exciting is actually coming from newer players you know it feels as if there's a change here in the media and entertainment kind of ecosystem that, that is quite profound and it's it's happening in this space yeah i think uh you know it's it's very easy for us to to focus inwardly on on what our own organizations are doing but there is quite some disruption going on um yeah and and it's not a surprise i suppose that that, that really landed for you in the in the final report because in that streaming space it's it's perhaps at its most obvious it's most profound that we're seeing you know over the air broadcast tv very rapidly start to get replaced with streaming tv even for linear channels and the players that are significant in that space are not always those that we've been used to. You know, there, there absolutely are big players that we've been used to. Uh, you know, the, the timing just so happens that that Sky have made big announcements across Europe about their new streaming first yeah. pay TV devices and so on. But meanwhile, over the past couple of years, Samsung and LG and Vizio have, have all been building streaming 
TV platforms integrated right onto the EPG on the devices that they're selling, that millions of customers are buying. Um, and uh, and it sort of almost seems to go unnoticed to many of us. Yeah, so that made a really big impression on me, you know, reading about Samsung, for instance, and the challenges that they have around, you know, all the different um, sources of content, the different kinds of supply, the different ways in which content comes into them, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the way in which they push that out to the consumer. I mean, heck, it was just like reading about some of the operational challenges that would be faced by an established broadcaster. And I just never thought of Samsung that way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and they have entered new markets here. You know, they, they have had to hire new teams. They've had to develop new capabilities. Um but but very much they are doing as you say what what a traditional broadcaster or at least you know TV platform would would do. Um, but I, that point you make about the sort of the different operating models and the skills that you need and you know there's there's a similar level of disruption going on in in other spaces as well. So actually even in your sort of you know traditional broadcaster world, if if you look in the third report at playout. Um, there's a lot of different ways that people are procuring playout services and the cloud is kind of shifting that up as well. So big broadcasters have tended to go out to manage services. They've tended to contract specialists to run their channel playout for them. Some of them seem to be jumping completely to the opposite end. There is a, a case study in, in that report, which sadly we had to keep anonymous, but a, a major broadcaster who listeners will definitely be familiar with, who's kind of bringing it all in-house, kind of mm. buying the product, deploying it themselves, operating it themselves, um, because they want that control over the software. But then you've got this sort of middle ground as well, where there's software as a service tools available now. And, and those, in turn, seem to be really appropriate and really useful for another new range of content companies who are starting linear outputs, whether that's musicians or you know festivals right. or film festivals you know all of these kinds of things so yeah again the whole dynamics of who's doing what and how they're offering those services really really being shaken up maybe there was a, a sort of naive moment a few years ago where some of us thought oh you know with the move to the cloud that that somehow the whole business of professional media will get a bit simpler or a bit less complex you know, there'll become some more standardized ways of doing things, you know, there'll become some standardized workflows and tools will get commoditized and kind of everybody will do things kind of essentially the same way. But it just feels actually in practice that with every every stage of evolution in media, we just add to complexity. It's like we're just determined to make our not particularly big industry in kind of global terms um just this sort of myriad of, of different ways of, of doing stuff yeah it's it's a fascinating point and and i sort of hugely agree with you and also want to challenge you on that so i, I suppose an example of where i would agree with you is again the playout piece it is astonishing to me how many vendors there are in the playout space. Think about how many organizations around the world are running linear channels. And, you know, it's not a, a very small number, but it, it's not a vast number either. And yet there are, I think, hundreds of different vendors of linear playout solutions. Um, and it really amazes me that, that there is a market for, for all of right. them. Um, 
But on the other hand, just to challenge your point, um, you know, if, if you go back to your example of Samsung TV Plus, and, and we talk in the report about how they have channels on their EPG where the content provider is completely supplying the channel, the video stream, the data, all they do is list it in the EPG. We have channels where the content owner creates the, the video playout and, and provides that into Samsung's CDN. We have variations on that where the content provider actually delivers a video stream into Samsung's origin service. There's lots of different ways that different content providers are being integrated. And you could say that that's kind of madness. Why isn't there a, a standard way of yeah. doing this? But equally, you could say, do you know what? In a software-defined environment, the the complexity of, of adding each of those options is is comparatively much smaller than it would have been in a hardware world. You know, you're not having to worry about lines in and out of your physical premises. Right. You're not having to worry about is there a standardized connector available for, for this video feed. Ultimately, there's a handful of different IP video transport mechanisms. There's, um, you know, a handful of different uh, ways that you can integrate that data. And and actually, if you have to do a little bit of bespoke integration for each content partner, is it the end of the world? Certainly to somebody like Samsung, who's who's coming into a new market and, and is not yet the the dominant player, they, they would say it is worth that. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great point, well made. Uh, but then I have to say back to that, does that mean that standardization, you know, common workflows, they are they are further away than ever? I don't know whether that could be a statement you could make across the board, um, but I do think it's it's important to understand where the commonality matters the most. Um, so you know, if if every different organisation had a different way of encoding their video transport stream well that would be a bit of a nightmare and and actually there's a handful of different options um there's there's quite a few variations that's why the dpp's got a recommendation in that space uh, <laughs> that, that people can use if, if they need it but you know there, there there needs to be a constrained number of options but things like yeah the exact workflow integration and that kind of thing i don't know yes it would be lovely if everybody did it the same way but but sometimes I suppose you have to balance the commercial opportunity of, of just getting on and doing it versus the ideal world that we as engineers would like to see where everything is consistent and, and managed in the same way. There, there are definitely some aspects of the world that need standardization and commonality and, and some pieces that I don't think do. Yeah, and I guess the great news is that um, it, it's, it's more possible now for a startup to break into this sector and build a business than ever before? A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, you know, automating media is probably the, the best example of that. Um, you know, we've seen a couple of examples in there in the case studies of, you know, big players, big, big media organizations working with, you know, very small startups. Um, and there's a couple of things that enable that. I think, you know, one is that, you know, cloud infrastructure means, you know, you're not worried about this company's ability to to host and operate a service necessarily. You're certainly not worried about their ability to build hardware that's going to last you for the next 20 years. Um, they've just got to create a functional, usable, workable software product that solves a business need. And, and actually, quite often, 
it's those small organizations that have the agility to focus and, and really work closely with a content company. So, um, you know, one of one of my favorite examples, actually, not, not a, a tiny company, but but Pixel, who are not vast, you know, work with um, Discovery on their their um, automatic identification of uh, text in, in video so that they could create textless uh, versions of, of programs. Now, that actually started as a pitch to a different media company for um, a slightly different problem to be solved. So actually understanding text on program slates, you know, uh, uh, sort of title cards at the start of recordings. Um, And the discovery team saw that and thought, well, we don't need that, but we do need something else that identifies text within a video stream and gives information back to us about what that text is and where it is and so on. I wonder if we could work together with this organization. And that's what they did. And they they repurposed it and they adapted it and they improved it to to solve their particular business need. Um, And and yeah, I think those kind of relationships become very important. And I actually think that small companies are very often the ones that are best set up to have those relationships because they have the agility. They have the, the ability to move quickly. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's if they can uh, draw attention to themselves in the first place, of course. Well, yes, that is the the eternal challenge. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, if those relationships can be forged, then I think a lot can be achieved. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you know, you, you made quite a lot uh, in the, uh, the, the the first report in this quartet about the fact that we looked at AI in um, 2018, wasn't it? End of 2018, I think it was uh, December of that year. Um, it was. And, you know, what we did then was was make a maturity assessment of where, of where AI had got us. Um, now, here you are coming back to it nearly three years later, looking at application of automation in the cloud. Um, and sense I got was that, that you felt there was much more clarity now about where automation re- really could bring benefit and was becoming well established mm. and where it was still struggling to have an impact. Would that be right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think that in, you know, we, we did call this out in the report in 2018, there was a huge amount of sort of disillusionment because there'd been so much hype you know i remember going to trade shows in 2016 17 18 and and you know, everybody was so keen to show you their integration of face recognition services and text to speech and speech to text and and so on and most of them just weren't really focused enough to solve particular business problems. I, you know, I'm not going to say they weren't good. The capability was impressive in the abstract. Yeah. But very often when applied to real world business problems, the efficacy was simply not where it needed to be to replace human processes. Yeah. Um, I think what people have understood in the intervening three years is that we need to look at those focused specific problems because, you know, Machine learning algorithms can be trained for those very, very effectively. Um, so, you know, that textless example that I gave from Discovery, um, you know, we've seen stuff around audio conform. We've seen stuff around shot logging 
but it works best when it's trained with particular corpuses of data in a particular genre. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of really where, where people have seen success. But the other thing that really struck me out of that report was how the evolution of what media companies are trying to achieve and where their focus is has really sort of aligned with the need for AI. So, so what I mean here is ultimately the direct-to-consumer revolution, and I, I think it is appropriate to call it a revolution. You know, every major media company globally has been launching these streaming services. A huge number of them have trawled their back catalogue to get these huge VOD catalogues available to, to users. Um, and processing that much content fast to launch these services requires automation. You know, you, you yeah. simply couldn't achieve some of these things in a reasonable time frame with people power alone. You know, yes, you could do it, but it would take far too long. Um, and, you know, that kind of back catalogue service has has turned out to be, you know, really quite popular. But at the same time, users expect good metadata. They expect credit skipping. They expect you know, uh, recommendations between content. And all of these things rely on bits of data that most of these broadcasters don't have in their archives. This all comes back again, doesn't it, to to kind of the industrialization of media processes that has had to happen because of the direct-to-consumer revolution. Right. And, you know, just because of the sheer volume of content that now has to be processed and because, as you said, you kind of have to have a catalog of content that you can both make available, but also that um, is easily accessible and searchable and everything else by your consumers. And that sounds so obvious. And yet it feels to me as if, you know, we, we still spend way too much time as an industry talking about how we can apply things like AI to production, you know, Right. Like over the last few years, it's still been way too much about, oh, will we, will we better edit a program, you know, using AI? Well, like, phew, so what? You know, it's not it's not really the use case that matters right now. Well, I mean, the funny thing is that, you know, every time you get together a group of senior leaders and you talk to them about automation in their business and you say to them, so is the ultimate goal to reduce headcount? They will tell you time and time again, that no, they don't want to. They don't want to reduce their headcount. What they want to do is do more with the same number of people, and they want to move people into more creative, more fulfilling, more rewarding jobs. And you know what? That should be a logical outcome. It's those very repetitive jobs that can be easily replaced with automation. Yeah. So, so why spend so much time thinking about how you can apply the automation to the highly creative roles where humans really excel? What a great way of putting it. That is exactly it, isn't it? Um, it, it always seemed odd that that you know major broadcasters would defend the the time and the money and the people they dedicated to frankly quite mundane tasks uh, you know and it sort of found a need to try and make those mundane tasks sound more special mm. or to justify all that activity and and that finally is now getting pushed aside by the potential of automation it's about time because you know it's that is that thing that often gets lost that that actually um, what smart technology can do is 
make a human being become smarter, right? Because it does do the mundane stuff for you. So you can then push on and, you know, solve or address more interesting challenges. And so I guess what's fascinating here, particularly when we're talking about direct-to-consumer, is that, okay, so now we can do that with our people. So what will be the things they go on and do? Yeah, it's what, a great question. What's going to blow us away about how content providers have um, have kind of made experiences great for consumers because they were freed from a lot of that dull stuff? Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And, and you know, will that will that be simply the creation of, of more fantastic content? Will that be, you know, different ways to repurpose that content for different devices and experiences and platforms? Will that be, you know, to, to really focus on on the product, the experience around the video streaming and, and what other experiences can be built into that? You know, we've certainly seen a lot of that in the live event streaming space. You know, when, when you look back to streaming at scale, there's all sorts about what people are doing around commerce, around chat and interactivity, around gaming and gambling even, you know, all, yeah. all sorts of different things. Yeah, we, you know, you and I have a, a bit of a hobby horse, don't we, about storytelling being utterly central. Um, but I, I think there is still a lot of potential for what are the additional experiences that can go around that. Right, right. So, so you know, here's, uh, here's the kind of outrageous thing for me to say as a, as a former producer. Um, but I, I do feel like storytelling is so central and it's working just fine. So can we stop still spending so much time talking about how storytelling supposedly might change and, and more time talking about how consumer experiences might change, you know, on the receipt of that storytelling. And because for, for us as consumers, you know, our, our interface with, with the devices that deliver us content is still pretty primitive. You know, all that stuff about recommendation and discovery, it's still pretty primitive. And I, 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 I do wonder why we don't actually worry about that a bit more um, and actually why content providers, but well, maybe they are worrying about it more than they're letting on because you just feel like if there's, if there's a major breakthrough in that space, that's when somebody's going to steal a huge advantage. Well, I, I think that's right. And, and I think it's, it's very interesting to have heard what Somia said on the Streaming at Scale webcast, because clearly this is an area that Discovery are putting thought into. Um, yeah. And I'm sure they're not the only ones. Yeah, yeah. But, but OK, so while, while, while I'm kind of moaning about the t too much attention still being given to the, if you like, the earlier part of the supply chain, um, can I just say that, that a, a bit of my heart sort of sank slightly reading the post-production report? Because <laughs> there was some of it that still did feel to me like discussions that were happening, you know, a good decade ago. Um, you know, that basically just concluded that the the sort of bigger and heavier the job you're trying to perform on a piece of content, then the closer to you the storage needs to be, the more likely you need to be to be in a specialist facility, blah, blah. Whereas if you're doing something a bit 
lighter weight, you know, like a, a rough assembly or something, then hey, there's great potential in the use of the cloud. I mean, am I missing something? Do, has the discussion really moved on that much? I, th I think it is moving on. I think it's at a a fairly snail's pace. I mean, I, you know, I would raise you that discussion from from perhaps five years ago and or five to 10 and go back 10 to 15. And so we're having exactly the same discussion. It's just that at that point, it wasn't the cloud. It was desktop editing. Oh, yeah. It was uh, producers in, in office spaces doing those yeah, lightweight right. edits. Um, so so in some ways, yes, I agree with you. It feels like there's a bit of a, a circular conversation there. But I, th I think there are some real um, some real changes in the tone in the last couple of years. Um, most specifically, I would pull out that while you look at that post-production report, and it absolutely does say, you know, some of these things are going to take place in the cloud and some of them aren't ready to take place in the cloud yet. And you think, oh, yeah, okay, that, that seems like a tired discussion. But actually, you look at why they're not taking place in the cloud yet. And mostly, I won't say exclusively, but mostly the reasons that we were being given for that were not so much about... You know, the size of the media or, or or the complexity of the computation or anything like that, you know, conversations about the need for graphics processing have largely disappeared because you can get good GPU instances in the cloud now. Yeah. It's much more about the inputs and the outputs to the process. So, you know, what I mean is um, the physical control surfaces that colorists use that you know, don't have good ways to connect to remote cloud-based instances. That is a solvable technical problem, but it is still a, a problem that people are having today. Perhaps more significant, it's the the uncompressed HDR outputs into, you know, proper monitors that, that people can be looking at um, for, for color accurate work or, or for um, audio work, you know, you, you need really, really low latency for, for working with audio. So it seemed to me like people were talking about the specific technical challenges rather than just, oh, God, it's a load of media. It's, it's hard to do. Yeah, yeah. No, I do get that. That is a, a really well-made point. And I guess you could say the problem space, for want of a better cliche, um, is beginning to shift. Um, but, you know, do you think it could shift? further still i mean do you think there are there are opportunities out there through the use of clouded post-production that you know are even more exciting undoubtedly um and, and again you know in in the webcast um one of our contributors said um something along the lines of you know just because it's in the cloud doesn't mean it has to be operated from home um and and i think that people really wrapping their heads around the idea that you can be working on something in one location and have the computation and the media and, and all of that kind of thing in another location. It doesn't sound like rocket science. We've been doing it with machine rooms down the corridor for years. But yet, it still feels to me like when you have the conversation about, you know, grading or dubbing, you know, these finishing tasks, these high-end tasks, they require physical environments. They require controlled lighting. They require great monitoring, whether that's video or audio or both. People very often take that as meaning, therefore, the whole process has to be on-prem. And, you know, speaking personally here, it, it just seems to me like the future has to be 
physical environments like that with the right connectivity into the cloud infrastructure that that right. the edit suite is is running in the cloud same as with a craft edit on a on a virtual machine um the problem to be solved is how do you get those input and output devices connected to that cloud infrastructure it doesn't mean that physical environments are going to go away but it, i i absolutely think those tasks will move to the cloud and and there seem to be a few too many for my liking people who who are not really thinking about that who are just thinking oh well, we need the physical spaces so we'll pull all the media back on premise to do that stuff okay that's that's a really great point actually and and it does yeah it reminds me of something that um charlotte layton hmm. said uh in in your webcast about about this report um when she talked about the need to challenge the culture Yes, around post production, and I thought that was that was really interesting, and I'd love to talk to her more about what she's really getting at with that, because um, you can see all sorts of ways uh, in which that that could be beneficial, both in, from the point of view of um, sort of quality of life, but but also uh, you know intensity of work. Um, and you know hierarchies of, of decision making and there's, there's all sorts of, of aspects to that topic they're not they're not in themselves technical mm. they're absolutely not but maybe technology can help us to to just make the process of post-production more pleasant because yeah i mean this is where i will you know go back to my my past i mean it was always it, you were spending a lot of money and you were sitting in really nice rooms and people were bringing you a lovely lunch but beyond that, wow, God, it was intense and stressful and mm. tough. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I think that culture does does need to evolve. I, I also think it's interesting how in post-production, the technology and the creativity seem perhaps more intertwined than, than almost anywhere else. Um, yeah. It seems to me that people are very attached to particular tools um, and particular ways of doing things. And... You know, a great editor, you know, craft editor is a is a great storyteller. You know, uh, a colorist is somebody who is incredibly creative and an expert at, at creating that that feeling and that look from a piece of content. Uh, I think it would be great if more of those individuals were were sort of more open to to applying those those fundamental skills in in different ways and, and through different workflows and you know i don't want to make sweeping generalizations here we know we know plenty of people in that world who are really forward thinking yeah. um but but it definitely definitely does feel like the uh the area that is most ripe for continuing disruption yeah yeah okay i guess we should come to a close pretty soon um the question i want to ask you rowan having written a sort of high-level report in this area mm. for the DPP last year and found it to be the most popular report I think we've ever done. And then having written four more, you know, more specific, more detailed reports in this area this year, is that it? Is job done? I think... Uh, I mean, firstly, I think I need a break, uh, <laughs> and I will will be taking that. But but no, I don't think it is. Um, the the topic next for me isn't so much about the cloud per se; it's about how all of these different elements can be integrated together. You know, it's great that we've got software as a service tools, and we've got you know cloud native tools that people can deploy and. 
you know, one of the things that we haven't really touched on is is just how transformative um, some of the sort of IP video uh, streaming formats have been, you know, SRT and RIST and Sixty and NDI and so on, at enabling new workflows in the cloud. But ultimately, it does come down to you've got a bunch of different software components, and and they need to be integrated to form end-to-end workflows, and and that is an area fraught with complexity. Again, one or two of the case studies you see companies who are really prioritizing their automated build and deployment and testing pipelines. You know, media companies are becoming software experts, um, yeah, or or at least they're needing to partner with them and that challenge of how you actually build effective end-to-end workflows using all of these different components that for me is is the nugget that that i really want to kind of dive into a bit more un- unwrap a bit more choose your uh, choose your poor metaphor <laughs> okay i've got a feeling you might be uh, be teasing a a new piece of uh, technical insight from us for the new year maybe it's almost as if I've thought about this and thought about what we might need to work on next. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but before we get to that, we've got lots of other stuff, haven't we? We've got, uh, we've got we leaders briefing in now gulp just about three weeks time. Wow. Um, yeah. And then we'll be straight out of the back of that into thinking about CES and consumer trends again, like we do each year and also about, our predictions for 2022 for uh, the industry, the DPP prediction, that's always a good one. So when you and I get back together again on this podcast, I think it's going to be to reflect on the leaders briefing, don't you? I'm just wondering what's what's going to be the big trend coming out of that this year? I can't wait. I actually think that this is going to be, you know, one of the hardest to predict. I think, you know, people have had their, their minds on all sorts of things. The pandemic's had a huge amount of impact, but it's by no means the only significant thing that's been going on in the media industry. And and yeah, I, I, I'll be fascinated to see what are the trends that come out of those 30 different companies speaking. Um, looking forward to it. Yeah. So you'll be hearing from us again in another podcast about all of that in about a month's time. And until then, bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye-bye.